You're listening to a Women in Media event. This is our STEM panel in the media and we really hope you enjoy. ...and leading the discussion, but these of course are our fantastic panelists who I will let introduce themselves. Now there are five, so sometimes the order might get a little bit, little bit mixed up, but we'll do our best. But if we start with Anjana and then I can direct from there. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what your current role is? Okay, hi, I'm Anjana. I'm an earth scientist. I'm an engagement specialist and I also work as a TV presenter. Um, I currently work for Wessex Museums, which is a partnership of four museums in Dorset and Wiltshire as the engagement lead. And my role there is to bring underserved audiences into museum spaces. Um, As an earth scientist, I do lots of work trying to help audiences of all ages engage with the science itself. And I do that through a YouTube channel, through television, through radio, and basically any anybody that will listen to me, frankly. So great. Abigail, would you like to tell us about your role? Sure. Uh, Hi, um, I'm Abigail. I'm a systems engineer um, at the BBC. So my my main sort of day to day job is uh, getting live video and sound from far away places back into studios. So think of think of live events like Wimbledon and Glastonbury and, and news events like Royal Weddings and things like that. Uh, so that's my day job. Um, I'm sort of uh, heavily involved in, in outreach. Um, so I do a lot of work with, um, with schools and young people, just trying to encourage young people to consider science and technology um, and engineering subjects uh, later in life. And basically just trying to show them what careers there are out there in broadcasting. Um, so I do a lot of work with, with, with schools via sort of STEM ambassador work. Um, and I'm also a member of the Young Professionals Board at WISE, which is a campaign um, for uh, gender equity um, in STEM careers. Great. Beth? Hello, I'm Beth O'Leary. I am a live sound engineer, so it's been a bit of a quiet year for me because <laughs> not many live events going on. Um, it's quite unusual, only about 5 to 10% of sound engineers are women, so I advocate for more women to get into the industry. Uh, I blog and mentor for a charity called soundgirls.org and just generally uh, advocate for more inclusion, more diversity and more learning fun stuff to do with sound. Great, thank you. Alex? Hi, um, my name is Alex Morse and I am self-employed and have been for 20 years. I've got more than one hat really, but I kind of sum up what I do as writing about teaching and doing ecology. Um, So I work a lot in conservation um, across different sectors really. So um, I earn a lot of my bread and butter doing consultancy work, which is mostly private sector, but I've also worked in academia and, and teaching and um, outreach. And I work with the media, so I write for The Guardian, The Independent, BBC Wildlife Magazine, um, just all really nice wildlife things. And sometimes I have a really good old rant about things that need fixing. Um, and I work with the National Union of Journalists as well as trying to, not work, it's unpaid campaigning to try to make the industry better at how it covers science and environment. Um, so that's something I'm busy on as well. And I've written some children's books, um, but I also do a bit of engagement work, which um, again is a freelance, it's one of those sort of conservation areas where we always think we should be doing more, but there's not really any funding for it. And um, trying to get diversity into that is really difficult when there's no funding because you end up with sort of more privileged 
um, background people going into it and I'd love to see more diversity and inclusion in that um, in all the ways that there should be because the environment sector is the is the second least diverse in the UK uh, because there's no money in it so of course you know this is what we need to confront if we want to get more women into into STEM careers. Great thank you and Elsa. Oh left to last oh no uh, yeah so I'm a scientist and a writer so I'm actually, a, I'm mainly a researcher uh, based at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History and also associate researcher at National Museum of Scotland. But um, yeah, and I, well, I study fossils, I study extinct life um, and do a lot of work on the Isle of Skye. But I also do a lot of outreach and talks for the public, for people of all ages, all backgrounds um, and freelance science writing too. So I've written, for example, for The Guardian for uh, several years. I do a sort of regular series for them. Um, also sort of in print and online publications and I have a book coming out as well so I'm getting into like general popular science writing and really I guess because I have this sort of drive all the time to try and share the, the sort of wow moments that I have in my own science like I just think science is amazing and I want to share that feeling with other people um, yeah and I also was a, a graduate of the BBC Women Expert training uh, that they do so they basically train you on how to do podcasts and radio and television and stuff and I've done a few appearances on more on radio not on television very much thankfully uh, that's a bit too much for me a bit too intense but uh, yeah I've done a few radio things and a few articles and stuff like that. Excellent thank you well all of you mentioned outreach and how important you think that is so we'll get on to that but could you quickly give us a little summary about how you got onto your career paths where did it start what motivated you um and we can stick to the same order if that works sure i mean my interest in uh earth sciences and geology started with this and i always talk about this rock because i picked it up when i was 11 years old off an ancient lava field in kenya and uh, I grew up in Slough, so you don't see anything like this in Slough. If you've ever been to Slough, what you see is a lot of concrete. Um, I, I think that really inspired me because I think where you, where you do grow up in, in quite difficult, deprived areas, you don't have access to nature like some other children might have. And for me, that was a transformative experience. I went on through my career um, really having to battle a lot of obstacles. There was, there was culture, there was, you know, deprivation, there was, you know, misogyny, because I think particularly for uh, diverse women, so if you're a black or Asian, moving into a sector where you don't see yourself represented, where your family don't see you represented, that is a huge challenge. And you've got to convince the community that this, this is a career path that's worth going on. And uh, I always battled with that. That was a huge struggle for me to, to help my parents understand that this was something that would pay off in the end. I went on to do a degree and a PhD and I worked in the US for about four years as a research scientist and, and with various people. But it was only when I came back to the UK after, after that period of time where I had a chance to really get my teeth into quite a meaty career developing the education programme at the Jurassic Coast. That's when I really started to flourish and, and learn about the tricks of the trade and understanding that the magical stories of geology and geography could really bring to life something that's seen as quite a static and abstract subject. And it was there actually that I got picked up for various TV opportunities. And I just, I just knew naturally that's where I fit in terms of the media. 
Um, I, I just, you know, I think my passion and my excitement about things like fossils. So as you can see, I've rightfully got lots of samples here on my desk. I, I just bring these things to life because I think one of the key skills as a scientist and particularly a scientist working in the media is you've got to have a really good knack for bringing objects like this to life. So you have to have the imagination, but you have to understand how to process the complexities of the story about this piece of rock um, to life for an audience that cannot understand and really struggles to relate. And I think that's a real, real key skill that I've picked up over many, many years. And just like Elsa, I was also a graduate of the BBC Expert Women programme, which was brilliant, wasn't it? Um, and I learned a lot of kind of presenting skills there, but I would say I, you know, it's, it's been a very, very difficult, hard process to, to get to the stage where I can present a solo piece on a major channel like ITV or one of their most popular shows. And um, that was ITV Love Your Weekend. And, and, and it takes a long time and you just have to believe in yourself and be committed and, and keep going. And that's the advice I would give really. That's great advice. I mean, just quickly going off what you said, not just fossils, but being able to communicate abstract concepts, we've seen how important that is with this pandemic that's been going on. So, you know, I think that's completely, completely good advice. So thank you. Abigail, do you want to tell us about your career path? Sure. Um, so uh, I'm here purely by accident, um, really. <laughs> I I was kind of always, um, I was always the kid that wanted to do puzzles and, and, um, and play chess and that sort of thing at school. So I, I think it was, um, kind of I don't know it was kind of natural for me to go into a STEM subject later on um, and so I ended up at university studying physics which um, which I loved it was brilliant but um, somewhere around the second year I started to think you know I, I love it and it's really great um, but I'm starting to think about what my future looks like and uh, I, I want to do something a bit more tangible um, I was forever analyzing things that I couldn't see um, and I couldn't touch and I couldn't um, I couldn't convey what I was doing very easily to, to the people around me. Um, and I wanted to do something that was a bit more, a bit more tangible. And I was just looking for opportunities coming to the end of my degree. And I think it was the, like the careers and employability service that just sent out an email one day saying, you know, look at all these options for physics graduates. Um, and the BBC were advertising a, a graduate trainee program. Um, and I thought, you know, that sounds fun. What's broadcast engineering? No idea. Read the, read the description, still not really got any idea. <laughs> But I looked at some of the subjects and I thought, you know, it sounds like fun and it's two years. Right. So worst case, um, I get to the end of it and think, oh, well, I'll do something else. Um, but I thought, you know, it looks like it looks like a good opportunity. Um, the BBC looks like a good place to work. So I'll apply. Um, and uh, I've never looked back. So I've ended up in broadcasting, which was a completely alien industry to me to begin with. I hadn't really thought ever beyond the camera and maybe an operator of the camera, <laughs> potentially some lights and some sound maybe. But beyond that, I'd never really considered what the options might be. And so um, I sort of joined the training program and spent two years traveling around different bits of the BBC, learning about different engineering departments. So I went through loads of different places. I worked for the One Show for a little while. Um, I did a bit of like engineering operations, so fixing studios when they go wrong. Um, I did a stint in Plymouth at a local, um, at a local radio station. Um, so I've sort of done all of these different roles. And then I was just, you know, looking for work at the end of it. And I, I took my first job in Birmingham, which I loved, but, um, you know, just didn't, it just didn't suit me in the end. It was, it was great. I had a brilliant experience, but it kind of came to a natural end. Um, and I moved back to London and uh, joined the team that I'm in now. Um, 
uh, sort of doing doing this this live contribution uh, ne networking, which is um, it's incredible. But it's a job that I never ever would have imagined existed. <laughs> so that's that's primarily why I'm so involved in trying to show children and young people what is out there because you know there's that there's that saying isn't there about you can't be what you can't see and and it is a total accident <laughs> that I'm here and it'd be really great if I could just if I could just show some some people what, what the options are and they might think oh yeah that could be for me so um yeah that's the aim of the game Great. Well, before we move on to Beth, I just want to point out that we have such a range of kind of panelists here that we have both STEM going on behind the media with Beth and Abigail, who are kind of in the more engineering, they do the more production side of things and broadcasting. And then we also have STEM through the media. So we kind of have a lot of different angles here. So Beth, would you like to... Um, I'm so embarrassed to be saying this in front of Alex, but uh, I actually wanted to work in wildlife conservation since I was about nine, and I went to the University of Sheffield to study zoology. Um, while, I was, <laughs> while I was there, uh, I got involved with the students' union technical crew, so we had a very active students' union, loads of tours coming through, and so uh, they taught you all the lights and sound and all that kind of stuff to run a show if as long as you worked for free in exchange so uh that's oh, okay. that's another hot topic yeah, but... bbc all over and quite a lot of people <laughs> it's a sore one for me because how do you get diversity inclusion if you only want people to work for free yeah and i don't i don't think i would have ever got into i was always interested in what happens backstage and stuff but like at my school all the all the tech was done by like the nerdy guy and his friends and there was it was never a question of who was going to do it um so if it wasn't for that kind of uh safe environment that you had lots of time to learn and get it wrong there was always older people there i probably wouldn't have got into it um so at the same time while i was kind of looking towards graduation i was trying to look for conservation jobs and i'm sure as alex well know well knows uh every single job needed at least two years experience and I didn't have any, and I was like every single holiday I was calling, or even during term time, I was calling people up asking if I could work. They didn't give me the time of day. Like anyone answered the phone even, and they'd be like, oh, well, I presume you have a car. I was like, no, I'm, I'm a student. <laughs> and uh, they were like, oh, well, none of, our, none of our sites are accessible by public transport, so bye. <laughs> and so this whole time I got a side, uh, like a part-time job working at the venues in Sheffield, like just pushing boxes and stuff, being a stagehand. And the whole time I wasn't getting anywhere with conservation. My boss was ringing up going, do you want to do this gig and this gig and this gig? So I was like, oh, I'm just going to do this instead. And so started off as a stagehand, worked my way up to being a venue tech at a couple of uh, venues in Sheffield. And then eventually I started working for for kind of bigger PA hire companies. So I, I, I work in live events rather than broadcast it's if you're not in the world you don't think it's a big deal but like studio work and live work and broadcast work are all very very different kettles of fish and they all think less of each other <laughs> even though they're all very skilled jobs um so yeah just kind of bit by bit i just kind of work my way up to uh i do a bit of mixing i you know because i'm a freelancer i do lots of everything but mainly live events, mainly music, sometimes I do conferences and stuff like that. And as I say, this year, I've, uh, well, I've been learning to code. That's, uh, <laughs> that's something. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'll remember to get my driver's license before I start looking for jobs when I graduate. If you're a freelancer, you have to have a car. Just 
no question. Um, Alex? Um, I'm going to follow up on some of the themes that other people have been saying here. And what, what I'm noticing is how many people have followed their nose and kind of taken quite a lot of different turns before they've ended up where they are. And that really sums me up as well, because, um, and, and anyone who's listening who isn't from a privileged background, and there's probably a lot of you, um, don't expect to know what you want to do with your life when you're however old you might be when you're listening to this because you don't have to know and you don't have to always necessarily end up liking the thing that you thought you were going to like and you've got to try it out to find out and sometimes trying it out working in the environment and conservation and in the media is really really hard because you can't get the breaks unless you're going to work for free and you can't afford to work for free necessarily and I come from a very underprivileged background uh, from a broken home on a council estate we were very poor no one in my family was educated I don't come from the kind of place where people go to university at 18 um, I managed to blag my way into a postgraduate journalism college course when I was 18 it was that or uh, probably end up on the streets and get in trouble and I managed to get into that and I went into um, a, a newspaper scholarship I was very lucky because they used to pay you back then this is a few hundred years ago um, I did the NCTJ National um, Council for Training of Journalists uh, two-year course um, and worked on local newspapers and that was that was good it was enjoyable did that for a while um, and then went back to university as a mature student and actually that gave me quite a lot of perspective because I realized what I, what I might want to do whereas if I'd gone to university at 18 I might have stuffed it all up because probably would yeah probably chosen the wrong course or whatever so um, I followed my nose um, did journalism for a bit and then went back to university and did my degrees in biology and environmental science and ecology um, and I still follow my nose and I do more than one thing and I've diversified a lot because I think when you're when you're freelance you kind of have to because you have to chase the work but also it's really nice to have that variety and do more than one thing and if you're really passionate um most people are who end up being self-employed if you're really passionate about nature and what you do you're going to want to do what you want to do you're not going to want to just be you know part of someone else's plan um, but it's trying to make that work can be really difficult and sometimes the thing that's really exciting for me that is the outreach isn't the funded thing so you end up taking on more than one job so you end up part-time doing a thing that pays the bills while something else is the thing that you're passionate about that doesn't pay and that's the thing with working in passion you know if you're working for things that you believe in you might not necessarily get pay or much pay at all or you might be chasing short-term contracts zero hours work uh, on that sort of thing and that can be pretty demoralizing if you've got a you know you've got rent to pay you've got children to feed and so on so try not to get disheartened by that and if you certainly if you want to work in ecology consultancy you need those field skills and no one's going to give you that without going out and doing it and it's really hard to fit that in if you you know if you can't can't afford it and I I learned all mine really by being a naturalist at heart and going out, it was botany for me that got me into it. Um, just that nerdy needing to know what a plant was called. And then when I knew it was called, what it was called, I needed to know why it was called that, why it was called sneeze or, or corky fruited or whatever. And what that told me about its history and its chemistry and which insects were eating it and the whole sort of plant interaction ecology. And that, that got me down that rabbit hole. Um, and there isn't much money for paid botanists. So then you end up diversifying into a wider ecology. Um, so, you know, you quite often end up opening up new routes when you go down, when you follow your nose and go somewhere surprising and sometimes enjoyable, sometimes frustrating. But if you're, if you're that way inclined that you're just passionate about something, you're gonna try and find a way to make it work. And if you're, if you're not able to do it in the first way, that you want to do it because you're not from the privileged background where mum and dad can just pay your rent while you go and volunteer for a year for the RSPB. There'll be other ways you can try and do it, but um, working for free 
is not I want to say it's not the way to go and don't do it but if you don't do it you're you're kind of you're stuffed because you're not going to get that experience any other way so it's a really difficult um position but um I would say follow your passion if you can afford to and if you can't um go maybe try again later in life is probably the advice I could give you know take a break and do something else and um get, don't 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 give in if you can afford not to give in thank you uh, and finally Elsa we'd like to hear about your career path yeah, it's really interesting. I think there's like two themes really running through everything that everyone said, and I'm going to just completely uh, be exactly the same. <laughs> One is this whole thing of, of well, as, as you put it, Alex, following your nose and just ending up somewhere unexpected. And that links into the second thing that I noticed every one of you guys said something along the lines of, I'm here by accident. And I think this is something that we have to stop doing because you're all here because you're all really skilled and you're all really good at what you do. It's not an accident. It might be serendipity with the opportunities, but you took them because you're all really skilled and amazing people. And so that's something I think we all have to try and remember and stop doing. We're not here by accident. We're here because we're good at what we do. I'd like to think. <laughs> I don't believe it, but I'd like to think it. I'm going to say it. Uh, but I have a similar kind of story. I, mean, I left school. I was I want to say, like, all paleontologists are supposed to stay. I always wanted to be a paleontologist since I was a child. And I mean, yeah, like every kid, I thought about it at one point, but my family were, like, really practical. I mean, we're Scots, you know. And their, their reaction was just, you can't make money out of that. So I didn't think about it again until I was much, much older. Um, and I pretty much flunked school, didn't do very well. Uh, ended up just trying to make ends meet for a long time, travelled did all kinds of other things and just didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like you said uh, earlier, you know, had no idea what I actually wanted to do with my life. Um, and it was complete serendipity. I ended up at a lecture about conservation because one of my friends was a student. And um, I just couldn't stop asking questions because it was so fascinating. And afterwards, the guy who was a professor giving the talk, he came and he found me in the crowd and he's like, whose student are you? I was like, I'm not a student. He's like, well, you should be because you're asking all the right questions and that was like the first time I actually thought I can actually I could try going to university but I had no no real qualifications so I ended up having to just kind of feel my way through I went to the University of the Highlands and Islands which are they're particularly geared up to help people get into university education even if you don't have the right the right background or the right qualifications or so on, or if you're a mature student like I was by that point. Um, and yeah, just ended up kind of where I am now by just the same sort of thing of ending up with opportunities, taking them and finding myself doing first the undergraduate degree and then going to Bristol and then going to uh, University of Edinburgh to do a PhD. And like, I'm kind of stunned to find myself where I am, which is kind of weird. So that's kind of how I ended up in the science side and in the media side of things. Uh, I hadn't really ever considered doing something like that before, but um, when uh, uh, The Guardian were looking for writers for, um, to write about, particularly about evolution and about uh, the science of evolution and fossils and things, and someone uh, sent it to me and said, you should try. So I kind of, I'm a firm believer in you might as well apply, even if you don't think you've got the skills, which I did not think I had the skills. But amazingly, I got it. 
and I absolutely and utterly loved it and I and that's when I realized this was something I wanted to keep doing so since then I've just apply apply for everything and put myself forward for everything that I can think of don't get like a fraction of them I get but most of them I don't get because that's reality of it um but eventually you know found myself where I am now and I, yeah that's that's kind of my story amazing well yeah like you said lots of you know recurring themes and lots of very inspiring themes so thank you all so much for sharing that I think it's it's really true that so many young people nowadays feel such a pressure and I think the also the British education system really reinforces that where you go from GCSEs being really specialized to then A level A-levels being really specialized, and then you can only pick one thing to do at uni. And a lot of people feel really trapped and really overwhelmed by that. So I'm sure our listeners are really going to appreciate hearing all of you say, look, just don't even figure it out yet. Just keep going. (laughs) I think that's really good advice. So thank you. Well, can I also say something there about that? Of course. No, not only, look, I'm in awe of people who do know what they want to do their whole lives, and that's fantastic. But another thing is, you know, you sometimes think you know what you want to do and you can even do it for several years. But there's actually now we're really lucky because we live in a world where we can change our minds. Like my mum always says to me, you know, you're you're so lucky when I was younger, you picked what you did and that's what you did. And you couldn't ever consider really changing because it's just not, you couldn't, you just couldn't do it. So yeah, it's really cool that we live in a world where we can actually change our minds. Yeah, absolutely. I think that to- totally agree. I mean, and of course, you know, this is a discussion. We don't just have to go question by question. If you guys want to elaborate on anything, just chime in, please. Um, otherwise, we can. There's one thought I, that's, that, yeah, that just popped into my head that somebody else said earlier is about how you hear people say, oh, you know, since I was a tiny kid, I always did this. And, and actually, no, I mean, I. I came from somewhere there wasn't any nature. I came from concrete <laughs> and um, my family didn't go. I can remember being in a like really old banger car in the 19, probably late 1970s, early 1980s, driving past Epping Forest in awe, looking out the window. Go, oh my God, I need to go in there. <laughs> and I wasn't allowed anywhere near it. Like, let me out of my cage. I want to get in that woodland. And um, I think that stayed with me, that desire, that that longing, that absence of nature. And just, you know, you don't necessarily have that, um, I've been this since I was born thing. Sometimes it's something that the longing that, beca- that becomes apparent to you. If you haven't had those opportunities as a kid, you might not necessarily know what that longing is. You might not find it till later on. Um, and just because you haven't got that childhood experience doesn't mean that you are not that thing. You know, don't feel intimidated by somebody else has been a birder since they were 10 and they know everything. You know, some people don't start writing until they're in their fifties or sixties or don't become a naturalist until they're that age either, you know. So do do your own path and don't fall like don't compare yourself to other people. Definitely, thank you. Angela, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just what a couple of people have said about um you know this kind of working for free and volunteering for free and actually i i work in the museum sector and i also sit on a panel for heritage fund looking at how we can really um broaden diversity and level the playing field so we can encourage more young people into heritage and you know natural heritage i think one of the key things you have to understand is that the sector is desperate to change. We are desperate to see more museums and more kind of heritage organizations offering opportunities for young people to come and see themselves within the sector and to provide 
funding for that to happen so i know it's slow and it and it's incredibly like a great big mammoth of a machine that's moving but things are slowly changing so where we are we have a funded program for disabled young people at wessex museums to come and work do work placements paid work placements within our museums and i think it's worth if you if you can contact a museum just find out if they have programs like that because you know I, I'm speaking from the other side of the fence here. We are desperate to hear from disabled young people that would like to work in museums because we have the funding to allow that to happen. And, and I think just be proactive and go and approach those, those organizations and ask them, do you have something that will help me to do this? And how, you know, here I am, perhaps you can, you know, they can sort out something for you to, for you to go in and get that experience because you know the, the sector is changing, albeit very slowly, but there are opportunities out there. Well, I mean, that fits greatly with what I wanted to ask you all next, which is you know, this topic of outreach. You know, obviously it's very important, but could you all elaborate a little bit either on the specifics of what you do, but also why you think it's so important? And you know, Alex and Elsa, you guys, mentioned well else I know you have a book coming out very soon and Alex you've written lots of children's books so you guys feel free to elaborate on reaching out to those different audiences you know especially children um but yeah let's just get into it if outreach also you can go first this time since you know so you don't have to go last <laughs> who's first yeah well I'm not sure where to start with that I mean like I was saying earlier I think what drives me to do it is that I I love sharing it's, it's wow moments for me. I like once called myself a science junkie because like I get high on that feeling of like when you discover a fact and you're just like, whoa, like, you know, the other day I was, you know, I write about stuff that I know nothing about as well. So I don't just write about stuff I'm, I'm a, a so-called expert in. You know, when I discover new things every day, like how many legs, the most, the centipede, centipede with the most legs has like, I think it was 750 legs. I'm just like, whoa. And so I have to tell someone, you know, so I think this is what sort of initially drives me to do it. But the reason I think it's important, oh, there's so many different reasons it's important. I mean, one is uh, Angela and, and also Alex, you said about not having those kind of, you're not seeing people who could be like role models. And, you know, I, I think the more that we put ourselves out there to talk about things and make them exciting, make them interesting, the more that people get to see someone who's talking excitedly about a subject and thinks to themselves that might be something I could do in future. Um, and for myself, I mean, I come from a very rural background, kind of the opposite to what Alex was just talking about. I grew up in, in like what most people would consider the wilderness, the remote parts of Scotland, although I object to that term because, you know, remote is subjective. I thought London was pretty remote, but anyway, um, but there's virtually nothing for anyone there. You know, there's nature, but you don't have any facilities. And although obviously, you know, there's this sort of idea that there's some lovely gentleman naturalist nearby who can teach you all about everything, that's not the reality. You have no access to understanding that world. And you can, uh, the other day I was writing about how much I loved rocks when I was a kid, but I didn't know what any of them were called. And when I got a geology book, I couldn't make head or tail of it because it's all just, gobbledygook it might as well be written in you know an alien language it doesn't make any sense and so it's actually those are all just barriers to understanding the world around you in this particular instance for any science so i kind of want uh, myself one of my real aims is to take all the language uh, and and let it, make it accessible for everyone 
um, and I speak to a lot of scientists about what it is they study and it's very difficult when you become trained as a scientist to um, remember how to speak like a normal person. <laughs> like, you know, so often I'll send something I've written for the public to a, to a scientist who's a specialist in that area and say, could you read over this and check for mistakes or whatever? And the feedback I get back is brilliant and I'm very glad they do it. But very often it's so technical um, and it's difficult to help bridge that gap between the real, real technical precision that a scientist is trained in and what most of us generally are actually interested in, like, you know, we don't want that detail. We want to know the big picture. We want the story. We want to know why it's interesting. Why should I care? And I guess I get a thrill out of, out of doing that, um, which is why I've written the stuff I've written and, and my book as well. Good. I mean, I know I'm not a panelist, but I run a science section for the student paper. And so often I get writers and they just basically write an essay. And I think nobody's going to read this. You need to really make this a lot more simple for people. And we can talk a little bit about science communication if we have time. But um, Abigail, let's go crazy with the order. Tell us about why you think outreach is important. Uh, it's, as Elsa said, it's important for so many reasons, but um, I, I wholly agree with the the kind of need to make things accessible. And and um, I I remember going um, to the science museum for some training. Uh, I was like volunteering for a, for a um, STEM event, I think, and they put me through some like audience engagement training, and I, I got to. Um, I got partnered up with somebody who was from a totally different industry to me, totally different background, had no idea what I do. Um, and we had to explain our jobs to each other, but there were specific words we couldn't use. Um, and and it was it was it was like really and it had this really like penny dropping moment for me where I was like, oh my God, I use all of these words that people just don't that I take for granted because I use them every day. Um, but they don't make any sense to the people that I'm talking to. I really need to think about this. And I've made a massive change since then. I think I have to think really carefully now about the language that I use. Um, and it's, sometimes it's simple. Like I've stopped when I'm talking to, to, um, to sort of younger age groups, I've stopped saying um, audio and video and started saying pictures and sounds because, <laughs> and it's such a simple substitution, but, um, but I think it's really important to be conscious of that. And, and then you are making it far more accessible to a much wider group of people. Um, so yeah, and it's just those moments. It's those moments where I get to share what I do and, and watch some little faces light up um, and they get excited about it. And I think, I mean, the, the best um, kind of the best experience I've had is I, I went to, to a school and we made, um, we made parachutes out of uh, bin bags and we attached little Lego figures to the bottom and took them out into the playground and chucked them up in the air and sort you know just to see if they would fly and we talked about you know what would happen if we make the parachute bigger or smaller or put holes in it and then um, it got to the end of the day and, and two young girls came over and said oh we had a really good time we're going to join the science club and um, and that that was kind of a, a that's a driver for me I kind of go back to that moment sometimes and I think if I if I do these things and, and I affect one or two children at the end of it who think, oh, mate, I didn't think I could do that this morning, but now I think I can, um, then then I'll be happy with that. That is such a lovely story. I bet that just, yeah, exactly, almost makes it all worth it. Well, that works really well. We can go to Alex, because you talked about you know outreach to children specifically. Alex, tell us a bit more about the writing of children's books and why you think reaching that kind of an audience is important. Sure. Um, I've Got a shameless plug going on behind me on the wall, which is my three children's books here. That have written. So Winter Sleep was the first one I did. Um, and 
that is a mix of science and storytelling. So the first half of the book is the story about a little boy and his granny go off into the woods. She's a naturalist. And they go off into the woods in the summer and it's full of life. And then they go back in winter and everything's gone. And the little boy asks, nothing's alive in winter. Where's everything gone? And, and granny's able to explain that everything's hiding and oh, where's it all hiding? And, and um, the good thing, the fun thing about that is that actually quite a lot of the adults don't know the answers either. So what's really nice is when you can kind of go, did you know? And then and there's that kind of wow factor. And they go, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's really interesting, isn't it? It's a sort of conversation, pub conversation piece that, oh, did you know this? And and get, giving somebody a little a little nugget to, to, to remember and 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 what, what the answer to. So um we've done sort of live sessions with that book, um, with me dressed up as a stupid animal mostly, <laughs> and down in the woods with children. And and it's just lovely because after you run the story, there's a question and answer and children learn about hibernating animals and then afterwards what's really lovely is when you hear them walking off and you hear them telling each other the things they've learned and they've remembered um there's another example i did with them um, a school and as they were walking home from school they were telling each other about the things they'd learned and they were remembering the names of the, the flowers and so on and that's incredibly rewarding but then you know that they remembered and they've learned something that i think is really important it's not just a, a flower it's a flower with a name and a story and a history and a personality that does things and it has a function in the ecosystem and you're getting them on a path and maybe I'm trying to brainwash them but you're getting on the path to something really exciting and amazing that might you know turn into a scientist one day or somebody that conserves wildflowers or for example so it's really important um and I just find that that whole process really really fun and really rewarding and when you reach children um the same uh, where is it the funny bums book just came out last week um and well, it looks like a very silly tabloid title. It's got 9,000 words of peer reviewed science in there condensed down into really funny facts about why an animal looks funny uh, or weird or peculiar or whatever. You know, there's, a, there's a lizard that's got blood shooting out of its eyes and there's a, a butterfly that's got eyes on its genitalia and all sorts of fun things, uh, ears on knees and things, uh, which just is a fun way to, um, to share science in a, in a storytelling kind of way is narrated in the animal voices. So I think um, getting out of our bubble and trying to talk like we would talk to somebody on the pub, even though it's science is really important because we do all kind of end up in our bubbles and we all talk in our jargon and it's easy to forget that um, other people don't necessarily know or get turned on by that kind of language. So being able to mix the science and the STEM with um, general, uh, yeah, just basic English really just accessible nice storytelling English is really really key and that's what's fun about the outreach because it takes you outside of your, your little nerdy thing and makes you talk to a wider audience and share that um, as someone was saying earlier share, share that amazing wow factor that you that gets you excited. Totally and I think you know people have an affinity for nature or science people who are interested in loads of, my boyfriend is economics but I'll say to him hey did you know that the sun is I don't know, certain something away. And then we get into this whole conversation about planets and this and that and the other and history and the Big Bang. And, you know, he's not a scientist at all, but people do have an interest and they love that wow factor. And science is such an accessible way for that. Beth, would you, can you tell us about your outreach? Yeah, well, uh, my outreach is actually pretty selfish. Like, <laughs> I, I don't want to be the only woman in the room. I want to work with different people from different backgrounds, different uh, points of view and experiences because that makes the workplace more productive and makes the show better 
like it can be challenging but it actually in the end makes everything better and makes us better technicians because we learn from each other rather than everyone coming from the same background doing the same thing and I need to be careful with what I say I don't want to cause any offense or anything some of my best friends are straight white men but holy moly they can be boring so boring um and you know one of, one of the problems we have in the technical side of things is the source materials that you need to read to learn so we have like it's a thing that you read the manual of the sound desk that you're going to use and stuff like that or just reading theory about speakers and all that kind of stuff and it is so dry it is i, I spent years because i didn't do physics at school because it was really boring <laughs> like, i don't know how i ended up in this oh, yeah, job yeah. <laughs> um, but it took me years to realize that each individual subject is not boring some so so many things are really interesting it's just the way that they're taught it just sucks the joy out of everything and there's a big problem with expert blindness as we kind of talked about of like people have been doing what they're doing for so long they don't realize what's normal for a normal person to know and what isn't so they either skip a whole bunch of stuff talk in jargon presume you know things and then when you don't know what they think is obvious you go oh my god am i such an idiot or they explain every single thing in teeny tiny detail and i call it tech explaining because it's it's not really a mansplaining thing it's not because i'm a woman it's just techs can be very intelligent but not very socially adept so they kind of they don't know what is normal for someone to know or not so they just explain everything and it is just patronizing so it's like I I learn best from people who are excited about their subject, who are talking to me uh, like an equal who just doesn't know about that thing yet. And that's that's really what gets me, and especially if they're enthusiastic, like people like um, Dr. Uh, Maggie Adderin Pocock, she's amazing. Like, I wish I cared about, ast um, uh, about astrophysics because I love hearing her talk, but it doesn't matter what she's talking about, I'm gonna tune in. Um, so I try with my blogs to kind of uh, partly talk about technical subjects and put them into plain English. You know, maybe I'm not exactly getting the balance right a lot of the time, but you know, I try to do it so it's clear, interesting, but not patronizing and not kind of like you know, not everything needs to be in pink or put into a song. It's, you know, because I'm talking to adults, it's like, but, uh, you know, talking plainly. And I also talk about uh, attitudes at work as well, because there's a lot of kind of, uh, when you start out, you think everyone knows everything. Whereas I try to kind of share as much as possible all the things I got wrong and, you know, how I actually handled things badly and what I learned from that, because people are very self-conscious about, the mistakes that they make and they don't want to share it with anyone and and so you when you start out you feel like oh my god i made all these mistakes everyone else is so perfect i don't belong here but i want people to know that that's, it's just not true people are just hiding what they're doing <laughs> so come on down make mistakes we'll get along anyway don't worry about it i want more people to come in and get involved that's great thank you i think we should make holy moly straight white men can be boring the catch line of this talk that kind of that really works not, not all straight white men some, <laughs> some straight white men thank you um anjana would you like to add your bit I, i'm an i'm i i was in an incredibly privileged position because for 15 years i came in and i had the job of developing the education program for a world heritage site the jurassic coast 
And, you know, I was literally straight off a plane from the US having done several postdocs out there and had a stint with the National Park Service as well, learning about, well, I was a scientist in the park, but crucially through the rangers there and the ranger system, I learned about how do you actually engage people with nature and effectively and with meaning. So I arrived uh, in Dorset and Devon to, to really develop from scratch how to talk about this very complex linear site. It's, it's 95 miles of long, representing 185 million years of Earth's history. And to develop a schools program initially and then a community engagement program for that site was, was a huge, tremendous privilege. So I've worked with thousands and thousands of teachers, hundreds, tens of thousands of children um, over, over a 50 Yeah, I just saw that I was muted. Is am I unmuted now? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. And I think I think essentially the the beauty of outreach is is imagination and creativity. And children will always ask me, do you have to study a lot? You know, do you have to know a lot? And and yes, you do to a certain extent. But essentially, if you have the imagination and the and and an interest, it doesn't even have to be a, a passion. It just has to be. I'm really interested to know, for example what that spiral shaped thing in that rock is. Can you tell me about it? And the job of people like myself are those communicators as those enablers is to use our creativity, our knowledge, our imagination to bring this piece of rock alive for that child or for that, that, that adult who is, is new to science. And when I look over my career, you know, I've done everything from write classroom resources to develop festivals to, you know, like, and, and at the very end of the scale, you know, present on, on television. But essentially, it doesn't matter how you do, to do it. It doesn't even matter where you do it. I mean, you know, the latest thing that I did last year during lockdown was, was create a YouTube series with my then eight-year-old daughter, all about rocks and fossils. But the key thing is, is the joy and the passion that we can bring to inspire and ignite the imagination of the audience who is watching. So what was really interesting for me as a learning exercise was last year working with my eight year old daughter and we would go, you know, we were doing some videos at home about rocks and, and how they form and the different types of rock types. But when we went out onto the beaches and did a couple of YouTube shows there, and I started to get the response from the audience, what they really loved. I wasn't the star of the show. I never am. Who is the star of the show? Is this eight-year-old girl who's completely, you know, loves being outside and loves rocks and fossils and just brings her voice and her feelings and her thoughts about that to her peers. So, you know, the key thing about outreach and engagement is listening to your audience and understanding what they want. And you're soaking all of that in you're taking that and you're reflecting it back to them. And that is, that from my experience, that is effective outreach and engagement. When you're able to bring those feelings and those um, emotions that your audience is looking for back into their space through the medium which suits you, you know, whether it's through a book like Elsa and Alex or whether it's through television or whether it's through productions that Ab Abigail and Beth work on, it's all about understanding the audience. Great. Thank you so much. That's, I mean, fantastic. Great responses, lots of different perspectives, but also a lot of unity. So it's good to know that everyone's, you know, trying to advocate and inspire, you know, either because they want more women in their field, but that's very important and kind of brings us on to our next question, which is about encouraging women into STEM, both 
in degrees, career paths, whether that's in the media, museum, engineering, you can talk about it from, you know, do you think from an academic point of view, there's enough that's done to encourage women or just in your careers themselves, if there's enough. Um, and we can kind of have a big discussion about that. And then if we have time, we'll end with some questions. So who wants to go first this time? <laughs> I've definitely got something to say, but I've talked a lot, so maybe somebody else should go first. Okay, please. Elsa, please feel free to start sure. us off. Okay, well, I guess the first thing, and I actually wrote a note to say it while, while everyone else was talking as well, is it ties into this, is about stereotypes, isn't it? It's like, what is a scientist? And of course, for a majority of people, they're picturing, um, a, you know, probably an older white, male in a lab coat um you know very boring very dry not very exciting um and that and if and that goes for technological things as well they're probably picturing a slightly overweight middle-aged white guy <laughs> uh you know etc with a um, ponytail what was that with a ponytail a really tragic <laughs> ponytail <laughs> probably with a ponytail and so I think you know it's really important for women to move into these spaces for you know to prove to prove first of all that there are women uh, out there like the, the being in the media you're showing because there are of course already women out there not as many as there should be but there are many women in science many women in tech who just not don't necessarily get the chance to be uh, shown in the media but also, I think women have a tendency not to boldly put themselves forward in the same way that men do. I mean, there have been studies that show that, for example, with jobs where there's 10 criteria you have to have to have the job, that women won't put themselves forward unless they think they've got all 10, whereas guys will put themselves forward if they think they've got two, you know, like, <laughs> whatever. And, and so, and I should say that's part of the reason why I put myself forward for everything, even if I don't think I'm qualified, is because I read that study and I was like, well, why the hell should they have all the fun? You know, we need to be a bit better at putting ourselves forward. So, yeah, so there's that representation thing um, and also combating that stereotype. I mean, as you can imagine, in paleontology, again, picture a paleontologist. It's probably at uh, this time a younger guy in a Stetson in the desert with, you know, a pickaxe or something like that, maybe a gun as well, you know, digging up velociraptors. Uh, it's all very dramatic, but one of the things I think uh, I particularly like to talk to kids about is uh, that, first of all, that that's not, not true, but secondly, that even that idea that it's all about digging, it's not. When it comes to paleontology, it's way more about coding and about data and statistics and you know all these sorts of things that and also art i mean there's a huge part of it that's creative and i think outreach is a very creative thing you have to have a creative mind to do it so yeah but for me one of the biggest things is that combating stereotypes about who scientists are but also about who can get to be a scientist because it really can be anyone uh, from any background you don't have to take that linear progression from you know, secondary school to university, etc. And I think, you know, Angela, I'll know, you know, from the museum sector, there's this wonderful, that's what I love about museums, the people who work there are also uh, from bizarre backgrounds sometimes, they take all kinds of circuitous routes in, uh, and it can be quite, quite exciting and dynamic. I think Betty said how much fun it is to work with a diverse group of people, because actually it just makes life better, doesn't it? Yeah, can I 
can I take a little bit of a tangent because we're talking about stereotypes? So uh, in my in the last year, I've been learning to code and in doing so, I've kind of discovered a few things I'm now enthusiastic about because it's new to me. Um, and I found out that actually the first it was at first uh, it was mainly women doing the coding because when computers were first invented, it was like the hardware was like the interesting, sexy, like difficult thing. So the men did it and coding was seen as basically admin. So it was really common to get women to do it. Um, but over the years, it, and, and, at, and at the time, they used lots of like biological stereotypes to be like, oh, well, you know, women are, are organized and they think through things. It's just, it, there was one, there's one famous uh, woman coder who was trying to encourage other women to get into it by going, it's just like planning a dinner. You just do things one bit at a time. Um, so, you know, and because it was seen as, as uh, admin work, it was underpaid. Um, then over the years, basically, to get into the job, you do an aptitude test, but they added a personality test to it to, to, to select for detached personalities, basically people with no social lives, because then they would do longer hours at work. So they chose nerdy people who were unlikely to have families and things to do. <laughs> so they would, they would, you know, work overtime. And then the two got conflated. And now everyone uses biological stereotypes to say why men are better at coding or better at sound engineering or whatever it is. It's like, oh, well, it's obvious. It's science. It's biology. And I'm just sitting there with my degree in zoology going, oh, no, it isn't. Um, but in, in that change, all the, again, as I said, all the resource materials that you learn were written by these people with these, this mindset. And so it just became this thing of like, if you enjoy reading this super dry boring or you know not boring to them stuff uh you can be part of our gang but if you don't learn like this you don't get to join in and it's gatekeeping like people kind of feel sorry for nerds that they don't know how to communicate it's because no one's making them communicate properly it's because they've given them a pass and just saying oh well that's what they like that's that's you know oh they're really bad socially but that's what you need to be like to be good at coding or science whatever it's like no it's not true <laughs> all sorts of people can do it and luckily now I think with the internet with YouTube and stuff it's getting there's a bit of a democratization of teaching lots of people you know you just need to get on write a blog start filming yourself explain stuff yourself and I'm so glad to see a plurality of voices um, but for a long time if you're if you're you know especially if well don't want to slag off universities but like if you're going to university you're more likely to be taught by a lecturer who's been doing this for decades and they're going to have old-fashioned ways of teaching and it can be really off-putting to people and that needs to change. Thank you. I was about to cut you off anyways because uh, I'm just conscious of time and I wanted to hear everyone's bits but I wish we could go. We have another event at six is the only issue but I still want to hear from our other three panelists. So um, Angela, do you want to go first? Quite quick, but I, I'm going to approach this question from a very intersectional perspective of being uh, so representing the Black, Asian, and minority ethnic view plus plus women, and I think we face a double challenge, if you like. Not only are we underrepresented in STEM um, and particularly in the geosciences, but on both counts. So you know, for me as a, a South Asian woman working within the geosciences and the geographical sector. 
whenever I've gone to meetings in all the work that I've done, I have only been the brand face in the room. And we're talking over a 15 year period of, particularly my career at the Jurassic Coast, 15 years of being the single, you know, brown woman in the room. And in terms of women generally, hugely underrepresented, you know, there'd be a group of 30 people around a boardroom table and possibly four women, you know. So it is a very, very slow sector to respond to change. Now, having said that, yes, yes, that challenge has been there historically. We're now moving into a space where we recognise what the barriers are and that the sector is doing as much as it can to dismantle that. With particular regard to, I would say, Black, Asian and minority ethnic, I think where we see a greater representation of women moving into the conservation sector, we are dealing with all sorts of issues there, as you've heard about with um, uh, recent news in terms of uh, misogyny, you know, in, I would say institutional misogyny in, in certain sectors of STEM, but then we have to add to that intersectional racism, uh, institutional racism on top of that, that women of colour are experiencing. So, so what is where am I going with this? We need the role models and we need the positive voices and the allies to come forward and help those women move into the spaces where they need to be seen. So this is a lot of the work that I do. So I'm a National Diversity Award finalist uh, 2020 as a positive role model for race in the sector. And what I actively do is I mentor particularly um, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic people and women to, to succeed in what they want to do in the field. And I think people like myself who have gone through quite a successful career need to, need to put a ladder down to help the others up. And I think we all, all of us on this panel have a role to play where we have succeeded in our fields is, is to be that person that mentors and enables others. Thank you so much. So we literally have a minute. So Abigail and Alex, if there's something burning that you want to say, please say it now and say it quick. One really quick thing. Don't feel like you can't be a scientist because your skill set isn't maths or language or coding. Um, have a look on the link on the website. I've just put up for a bio blitz. Some of the best science is when there's a, an interface, a collaboration between more than one discipline. Find your strengths and use them in science. Don't feel like you have to be someone else's stereotype. Wow, perfect. <laughs> Abigail, do you want to add anything quickly? That's brilliant advice. Yeah, don't don't try and fit into these stereotypes. Uh, there are there are so many different people doing all kinds of different roles, and and they will all tell you that these stereotypes aren't real. It's just it's just what it's just what society has is perceiving about that role. Um, and there's no reason that you can't break those stereotypes. So go for it, break the mold, and do do what makes you happy. I mean, I don't think we can end on a better note than that. I'm sorry 